Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to have a discussion with two Canadian environmental historians, Alan McEachern and Edward MacDonald. We're going to talk about a new history of tourism in one of Canada's most attractive destinations, Prince Edward Island. The book is entitled The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism on Prince Edward Island, and was published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. The two authors are Alan McEachern, a professor of history at the University of Western Ontario, who has published widely on Canadian environmental history. He is joined by Edward MacDonald, a professor of history at the University of Prince Edward Island. We've reached both at their respective home offices. Alan and Ed, thank you so much for taking the time for this interview today. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. Well, thank you. Well, let's start with the very striking cover of the book, Alex Colville's To Prince Edward Island. I've always loved that painting. So let me ask you, Ed, was it your choice for the cover? And if so, why did you choose it? Well, it absolutely was our choice for the cover. Um, Back in 2015, when I was doing a lot of writing uh, on this book, I went to an exhibit in Ottawa and I saw the painting again after many years. And it just struck me, this is perfect for our book. It's 1965, so it's right in the heart of the explosion of tourism. But also, it's the tourist looking at us and we are looking at the tourist. And tourism is that relationship between you know the host and the tourist. And so I thought, it's, it's great. I bought the mug and Alan and I had a chat about it. And we lobbied for it and investigated the cost. And sure enough, they went with it, but they made a beautiful sort of a design out of it. So people in the bookstore here locally are going in and asking for the Colville book, not for the McCacken <laughs> and McDonald book, but for the Colville book. So I think the cover works. Well, Alan, I was uh, also impressed by the number and quality of illustrations throughout the book and the very handsome layout of the book itself. How did you manage to get so many high quality images, including the nine color plates? And how did you convince your publisher to produce what must have been a very expensive book in the end? Well, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, we certainly tried to make an attractive book. Uh, I, I think I should give a shout out to the Aid to Scholarly Publications Program and to the Smallman Fund at Western University, which supports um, some publishing costs of uh, faculty publications. But really, the, the main shout out, I guess, would be to McGill Queens, uh, which really didn't need any convincing. Um, I think they understood right from the start that tourism is naturally such a visual topic uh, in terms of visitor's guides and postcards and maps and ads and souvenirs and everything else. You couldn't really tell this story um, without a whole lot of images. And we ended up using, I think, 125 or something like that. And it was, I think one thing I would stress is that it was important to us that we didn't just show the images, but um, and we didn't just point to them in the text. We didn't just say, see figure 19. 
but that every single caption described and analyzed the image that we were talking about in full. Uh, yeah, I was very impressed with that, how well integrated the images were in the narrative of the actual, and how important they were to the actual narrative. Well, there's little in the way of the history of tourism in Canada, and I was curious about why this is the case. Can you tell us? Probably for the same reason that governments and people, uh, PEI, ignored the growing tourism industry for so long. Um, I think tourism takes to be kind of taken for granted. It just happens. People think it just happens without humans causing it or affecting it. Uh, it can be amorphous. It can be hard to pin down. And maybe above all, it can seem fundamentally unserious. So for us serious historians, we, of course, it's, it's a topic that seems unserious. So maybe that's why we've ignored it for so long. But I think one of the things that Ed and I really stress is that it doesn't just happen. And it is serious. It's serious economically, environmentally, and culturally. So it's worth pinning down, um, even if the sources seem to be all over the place. And we do have the advantage that we're working on the history of a province that's small. And you can get your arms around you know, the topic in ways that would be harder in, say, Ontario. But tourism has attracted a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of it, but it's mostly been from other areas like economics, leisure studies. Uh, but I think increasingly we're recognizing in the field of history that tourism has a lot of implications for the culture in which it resides. Well, what do you see as the connection between environmental history and uh, the history of tourism? Well, as an environmental historian, I guess at heart I tend to think that every history is at heart an environmental history. Um, but I do think that a lot of PEI's tourism history, because it's so dependent on a specific nature and a specific presentation of that nature, uh, mostly I think you'd say a pa as a kind of pastoral farmland, uh, involves attitudes and actions that are related to maintaining that nature. Um, so in that way, I think of the history of tourism as as very tied into history of national parks, which I've also worked on a lot, um, trying to keep a vision of nature intact and fighting against both humans and nature itself um, from changing that vision of nature, which you keep trying to impose. As a destination, too, you, you try to pick something about you that's attractive to tourists, a singular quality, and you polish that, you commodify it, and you package it for consumption. And in the case of our province on Prince Edward Island, it has been you know, the pastoral landscape, but the people also who created that landscape. And so since the 1920s, at least, there's been this emphasis on a traditional kind of landscape and culture that supports it. And so that connects the environment to the culture in a tangible way. Now, you both have a personal connection, very close one to uh, PEI. Uh, so I'm interested in the catalyst that actually got you going uh, on the book itself. Well, I would say Ed was the catalyst every step of the way. He really made this book happen, and uh, he kept it happening when there were so many times we could have uh, jumped and gone elsewhere. But I wrote a master's thesis 30 years ago on early tourism history of Prince Edward Island, and so I thought contributing to this co-written book would be just a cakewalk. Um, what I found, though, was that the digital sources available online just transformed the research and upended my interpretations of that research. 
So it got me really excited about the book in a way I hadn't really foreseen when I agreed or when Ed and I first started talking about this book. So I think it's actually because of digital sources, it's a much better book than it would have been in 2005 or 2010 or 2015. Um, and I'm actually quite glad that we got to consider COVID as, uh, as the COVID as the coda for the book. And I'm going to credit Alan. It was Alan's idea to do this book. He came to visit me. We've been friends for a long time. And he came to see me and he said, you recently did this history of the province of PEI and tourism figures largely in it. And we could weld together what I've done, what you've done, and we could have a book. But if we had done that at the time, it would not be as good a book as it is now both for the reasons of the research that's now available and the maturity of the scholars that have been working on it. Uh, I know, Alan, you've published at least three books since we decided to do this one, and I've been involved with four. And we kept coming back to it year after year and going, are we still going to do this? And in the beginning, the holdup was me, and it was <laughs> Alan that kept saying, yes, we can do this. So I think each of us encouraged and upheld the other when we wavered, and the result was a much stronger book than it would have been had it been out a bit earlier in our careers. Well, today, tourism is big business in PEI, of course, and only agriculture is larger and not by much, and I suspect tourism will surpass it soon. And as you point out in your introductory chapter, some 1.5 5 million people visit the island every year. That's an astounding figure for somebody who comes from Saskatchewan originally, where there's just a small trickle of tourism. Um, it really is a remarkable figure when you consider that only 150,000 people reside in PEI. Yet your book seems to imply that tourism never just happens, and that tourism in PEI really did not become major a major business until after World War II. Alan, uh, can you tell us why tourism just doesn't happen, and what you mean by the democratization of tourism in the post-war period where it did become big business? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think that that was really one of the mantras of our book that um, destinations are not destined, that you had to that you have to keep working at it, that you have to work at it. I think in the early days of tourism, there was a sense that it was a thing. There was a thing that just happened. But then when people started appreciating the, the money that comes with it um, and they tried to bring in people to a specific place or bring in more people or for a specific event or at a specific time, maybe expanding the shoulder season. They started finding out just how hard it is to rely on on getting tourists and getting more of them. Uh, and there was a growing recognition that you need push factors. You need things like regular annual summer vacations that would, would allow people to travel in the first place. You, you needed those to be in your favor. And you also needed pull factors, like you needed Anne of Green Gables, which has been kind of the gift that has just kept on giving to Prince Edward Island. So... I think that that was a growing awareness, not just in Prince Edward Island, but probably all over the world, that um, the destinations are not destined. That you that you got to keep that you can't take these guys for granted. That that um, you have to keep working to make them come and come again and come again. And the post-war era, of course, in the continent, actually, you know, globally, saw this explosion in tourism. Right, the democratization of tourism, as it's called in the literature, as 
people, in order to be a tourist, you have to have an inclination to travel. So someone has to stoke that desire and the motivation, but you also have to have the money and the leisure time. And so as incomes went up after the war, as people were starting to get you know, vacation from their employers and that kind of vacation moved down through the classes, and as the automobile and the interstate made it easier to move around, all of a sudden you've got a mobilization of the masses as tourists. And here on the island, we had the potential to be a destination, but we had to figure it out. What is it that we have that's attractive? And once we get the tourists here, you have to provide them with the infrastructure that they need in order to consume the landscape to consume the island, if you will, and get a repeatable experience that they will return for year after year or that others will come. And all of that came together in the 50s. And then in the 60s, we became even more plan-oriented and intentional than we were before the Second World War. So it's a conjunction of factors on the island, but also off-island. Well, let's go back to the late 19th century and the very early 20th century, what you call the first era of tourism when it was uh, basically a seaside resort. So, Alan, what drew other Canadians as well as Americans to a place that was actually quite difficult to access at the time? And what was the attraction, the precise kind of attraction to this idyllic pastoral island, as you term it. Um, I'm very curious because you wouldn't think that would be something that would be overly attractive to uh, Canadians and Americans who predominantly lived in rural areas, at, the, at least at that time period. Well, I think, I think actually for the sort of people who were coming to Prince Edward Island at that time, the not easy to access was actually part of the attraction, of course. Um, seaside resorts were making their way up the eastern seaboard. Um, and for a, for a certain kind of tourist, the kind of anti-experience being sought was something like Coney Island. So there was a desire to avoid mass tourism. So there was a real attraction of getting away from it all. Um, and everything else surrounding that, that Prince Edward Island would offer, kind of a vision of the old world, a little bit of Europeanness. Uh, Scottishness or Irishness or what or or Frenchness, whatever, of simplicity of the simple life. Uh, but of course, once those visitors actually came, they also wanted the same good cup of coffee. They wanted access to good hotels, and that sort of um, dichotomy has had probably existed on Prince Edward Island and lots of other tourism places ever since. Um, Charlottetown was particularly derided as being. Uh, a sleepy hollow as being not an attractive place for tourists. Um, and and I think that suggests what people wanted. They didn't want the actual place of Prince Edward Island and where Prince Edward Island lived. They wanted a kind of vision of it with as few people as possible, looking out over the water, looking out over the beach, looking out over the countryside. Now, you described 1905 as a turning point. Uh, three of the beach resorts that defined the first phase of tourism were destroyed by fire. And at the same time, L. M. Montgomery completed her Anne of Green Gables novel that would really come to define PI for visitors over the next century. 
and I think even today. But why do you think Montgomery's novels uh, have, why would they have had such a seismic impact? And to what extent were her characters and description of island life an accurate description of the place and time? I think you could say that Montgomery's books were, in terms of PEI tourism, it was a perfectly timed advertisement for the simple life. So all her books that are set on Prince Edward Island become this advertisement. Um, and you you got to think, like she publishes in 1908. I mean, that's the same year that Henry Ford is introducing the Model T. Um, and everything that we can think of associated with that, things like modernity, mass production, consumer culture, the idea of annihilating distance. And by the way, the Model T, of course, actually helps tourism to Prince Edward Island and everywhere else actually happen. I think um, Anne of Green Gables and, and Montgomery's works generally, it's kind of an antidote for what's going on in the modern world. I think you asked whether or not um, her writing was an accurate reflection of the time. To me, the question is not so much whether Anne of Green Gables was accurate, but rather whether PEI could live up to it. Um, and I think that's something that we still have to deal with, that we still try to deal with on Prince Edward Island. Could we be that idyllic? Could we offer that strong sense of community? Uh, when people come here, will it resemble the, the Anne of Green Gables kind of society that they expect to see? Yeah, and I think there are two aspects to its attraction. One is the novel itself. And it's, I've said elsewhere, it's the books that we fall you know, in love with when we're small that stay with us, that lodge in our hearts. And for many people, that novel is Anne. It becomes a cherished book. And so within Wild Allen, five years of the appearance of the book, you find people showing up in Cavendish, looking for Green Gables, looking for Anne. So she becomes a, a bit of a pilgrimage site. But the other aspect of it is that the Prince Edward Island of that book is one of the characters in all of her books. It's literally a character in the book, the Prince Edward Island Alan has spoken about just now. And I've always been trying to peg when exactly is Anne of Green Gables set, but it's not really set in a specific sort of a time. It is in a timeless place. Ian Mackay, I was at a workshop a few years ago, and he talked about tourism for many people in some ways being a recovery of innocence, you know, the innocence of childhood. So quite apart from being this escape from urban angst, industrialization, unhealthy cities, the rush, the bustle, the pressure, the anxiety, there's also that sense that PEI, especially by the 1920s, is, has become a time, or I'm sorry, a place out of time. And I think because she is able to evoke it so well, it reinforced what we had as an attraction and magnified it. Okay, well, Ed, on that point, I'd like to ask you about uh, Ian Mackay and his book, Quest of the Folk. Uh, and he describes how anti-modernism transformed Nova Scotia's identity. Would you say that there was a parallel development in Prince Edward Island? Alan and I haven't spoken at length about this, so he may disagree with me. Um, I would say yes, but in a more limited way. The Nova Scotia Ian you know, writes about is a Nova Scotia that has a huge 
urban element and kind of a heavy industry element, which is absent from tourism. So he talks about how the promoters of tourism in the middle classes culturally select certain aspects of the culture, and in some cases fabricate it in order to create this image of Nova Scotia. And that to a certain extent happens as well on the island, except that what we're selling on PEI is actually closer to the reality than it is in Nova Scotia. Even the fishing ports, the rural areas do feature an agricultural, rural people embedded in their landscape who've been around for a hundred years or more. So yes, we're appealing to that allergic reaction to modernity. And yes, we are selecting, but we're closer to the original. Who were the uh, boosters and knockers you describe in the second phase of tourism from 1905 until 1940? And uh, what about the no booze, no automobile, and in some cases, even no dogs reputation of the province? Didn't this hurt the development of tourism in the interwar years? Uh, yeah, I, I hope a lot of readers come for the come for the no dogs. The, the period on PEI when when uh, guests to the uh, guests to the ferry would would come and discover that they weren't allowed to bring their dogs on board and were supposed to leave them in New Brunswick. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how many of them did, by the way. Um, you asked about boosters and knockers. Well, I think boosters, um, the people who were in favor of tourism, they tended to be better organized. They tended to be in service organizations or business leaders or governments sometimes. The knockers, the knockers, those who oppose tourism or tourism promotion or sometimes oppose tourists themselves, uh, I think they tended to be individuals uh, railing against the, all the time and energy and money that was being devoted to what seems such a, a fatuous enterprise as tourism, as, uh, as making Islanders glorified servants to those who were coming from away. Because, of course, PEI thought of itself, on uh, some extent still does think of itself as fundamentally uh, an agricultural province. Um, uh, Garden of the Gulf, Spud Island, that's what it should be focusing on and, and not these come from a waste. Certainly all this knocking hurt and I think we, we find some good evidence of that in our book. Uh, but again, there was kind of a counter attraction to that, uh, you know, a place that, that apparently wasn't pimping for tourists might be a place that you could really get away from it all. Uh, because of course the one group that tourists really want to avoid, that they really want to get away from is other tourists. It's, it's interesting because I, I would say in the period we're talking about here in the chapter that Alan gave the title to, um, the knockers are often saying, well, tourism is not important. It's not worth our time. But by the 1970s, much later on, the reaction against it is metaphysical. It is what is tourism making us into? Tourism has become too important. In 1920, you know, the knockers are saying, it's not important. Why are we spending this time? What was that quote, Alan, from the guy from the, M I'm sorry, it was an MLA? You know, tourists, what good are tourists? They come home with an old shirt and they go back with your strawberry jam. <laughs> they just weren't taken seriously. But then later on, they're taking very seriously 
Yeah, there seem to be two major developments in the 1930s, one in 1936 with the establishment of Prince Edward Island National Park, and the second is that Charlottetown finally got into the game through the selling of the provincial capital as the Cradle of Confederation in 1939 and that huge celebration that was held that year. Um, can you explain to us the importance of both of these in terms of fueling later tourism, particularly in the post-war period? Well, I'll take a go at that and then I'll give Alan a shot at it. Alan and I did a word search in the, like in the papers uh, for Cradle of Confederation and it doesn't crop up until about 1907. Until then, Islanders couldn't care less whether or not we were the Cradle of Confederation. But by 1914, we thought it was a pretty good idea to promote that we were the place where the Dominion began. And uh, we had big plans, got a federal grant, we're going to have a celebration, and then World War I broke out and everything got canceled. So we had to wait 25 more years until we had a, a number that was appropriate. And we just got that one in, in time. Um, the celebration furthered a process of branding, you know, kind of a, like a reification. We, we kept telling Canadians we're the cradle of confederation and we repeated it over and over again until other people started saying, oh yeah, PEI, that's the cradle of confederation. And I think the apex of that comes in 1964, uh, the 100th anniversary of the conference here that led to confederation, arguably. And, um, I don't know whether people come to Prince Edward Island because it's the birthplace of Confederation by act of, I'm sorry, Parliament now, but certainly when they get here, it's one of the strands that they pull of tourism. And certainly it's a major attraction to Charlottetown. Now, what about the National Park? It seems to have been and remains a pretty important anchor of tourism in the province. Yeah, the National Park, PEI National Park, was so important, I think, to our story of the history of tourism because it, it was really the first first time that um, that there was a clear attraction, a clear single destination that could be pointed to within Prince Edward Island uh, for tourists to come to, for um, for governments to point to, and, and by the way, so importantly for the provincial government, for the feds to spend all their money, um, that this be a national park. Um, it wouldn't have happened, I think, any time uh, previous to the 1936, um, because up until the 1930s, there, um, Canada was the rest of Canada. Canada was pretty much accepting of the idea that the only place you could have national parks, or that that you would draw tourists to national parks, you had to have the kind of majesty, size, and um, majesty and size and, and large wildlife that one would find in Western Canada. I mean, there are some spotty uh, exceptions to that in Central Canada, but really it's the depression that really causes the feds. It's really the depression which causes Canadians to demand that all the provinces, that we truly nationalize this national park system. Uh, and it becomes a uh, necessary for Parks Canada to start imagining, well, what is a national park in Atlanta, Canada, in PEI or in Cape Breton or wherever, what does that look like? The fact that PEI National Park got one, it, it was, it, 
really Parks Canada, its predecessor, was really thinking in terms of tourism. They were really thinking of, okay, PEI does not have the kind of landscape that has the kind of majesty that we're used to. So the best thing that we can do for the province, the best thing we can do for ourselves is make a park that will attract millions of people. And that's ultimately what happens. And that provides a focus for tourism on PEI, as Alan said, uh, like an anchor in a physical sense, but also kind of embodies what we're about as a tourist site. So it's a watershed moment, I think. Well, in fact, by the 1960s, tourism seemed poised to take over as the island's number one industry. Uh, but it, it hasn't grown to the point uh, that it actually did overtake, at least for any sustained period, uh, agriculture in terms of being the province's number one industry. Can you tell us why and put it in the context of the famous Acres Report of 1967, which you describe as a benchmark document, and, and the report, you say, was quite prescient about what was going to unfold after the 1960s. Yeah, so that's a big question, two big questions. Uh, the Acres you know, report on the tourism industry is the first major sectoral investigation of the tourism industry. And it comes at a time when the province had decided, given the numbers of tourists and the way they were expanding explosively, the government decided tourism was now too important to be left to its own devices. It needed to be managed. How do you manage something? You gain control over it and you gain the control through information. So Acres provided a snapshot of the tourism industry as it existed, and it provided a blueprint for how to expand the industry and expand the industry in a controlled way. The mantra from Acres has been the same mantra that has been used ever since. More tourists, staying longer, spending more money, spread out across the province and across the year. That seemed something which could be easily achieved in the years of 1969 to 75 or so. The development plan was in full force. Uh, Ottawa was spending millions of dollars on Prince Edward Island to rationalize and modernize the economy, the society. And the Minister for Tourism every year announced that tourism was about to become the number one industry on Prince Edward Island, engendering a backlash on Prince Edward Island. But what the minister didn't acknowledge is that people's control over tourism is limited by factors over which you have no control. You can regulate, you can invest, you can go ahead and, you know, have a clever slogan to promote and market. You can study the tourism industry and it has been studied to death. I can't tell you how many studies I've read as part of this book, but you can't control the world economy. You can't control the price of oil. You can't control the strength of our dollar. You can't control a pandemic. You can't control the weather. You can't control whether there's something more attractive going on in Montreal or New York. And so as the world economy stagnated in the middle of the 70s, so did the tourism industry on Prince Edward Island 
the numbers, which had been increasing exponentially as a percentage, flatline, and they decline. And it causes a bit of a crisis of confidence among tourism advocates and planners. And the solution for them is to become more professional, intentional, more planning. And tourism, to its credit, has proven a resilient industry and it continued to cope. By the late 1980s, they had developed a vision for tourism. By 2000, they wanted to have a million a year as you know, visitation number. And in 1994, 1995, that looked like a pipe dream. Then in 1997, we opened the Confederation Bridge. And the next, that same year, we went over a million tourists. Well, on that point, it raises another paradox because part of PEI's cachet is that it's an island, and yet the opening of the Confederation Bridge seemed to have acted as a stimulus on tourism. Why? I think both of us may have to have a crack at this, but I have actually written about the debate over the, you know, the fixed link. And tourism, generally speaking, were big advocates off a bridge because for them, the problem was a bottleneck in traffic getting to Prince Edward Island. And they argued the bridge would become a tourist attraction. And to some extent it has. Although if you drive over the bridge, you'll realize how boring it is. But on the other hand, there were people who argued that the essential part of tourism to an island was the passage over water to get there, that you know, rite of passage. And so they felt that if a bridge was constructed, we would lose something that was integral to our appeal as a destination. So it was convenience versus a mystique. I think I would say convenience versus mystique is, is great. And I think it, but it's also a, a debate between what's measurable and what's not measurable. And I think the measurable is going to win um, so often in our society, at least. Um, and the the immeasurable is is whether or not PEI's cachet has gone down six percent. It's not measurable. What is measurable is the fact that as soon as the bridge comes in, uh, visitation increases a few hundred thousand, four or five hundred thousand, almost immediately, and stays that way consistently. It has transformed not just the number of tourists who come to PEI, but but the um, the sort of tourists have come. It's it's much easier for New Brunswickers and Nova Scotians to imagine coming across for the weekend, for example, uh, which is um, and it's it has also made it a hell of a lot easier for people to leave. So it's really kind of um, transformed, I think, what tourism looks like on Prince Edward Island for sure. Well, Alan and Ed, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book. Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much for having us. We've really enjoyed it. My guests today were Alan McEachern and Edward McDonald. Their book, The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism, on Prince Edward Island was published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. 
The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Sean Clement Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Sean Plain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallman. This interview was recorded on July 12, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.